the student of the game podcast where we break down the life strategy and advice of successful individuals who are students of their own game and masters of their own craft thanks for tuning in let's get to the episode What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Student of the Game podcast. I'm your host, Nick Galbraith, with my co-host, Tim Stone, and we have an amazing guest for you today, Drew Walgren with MAG Capital Partners. And we are blessed to have you on the show today. Drew, appreciate you being here. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This is great. Awesome. So I, I guess we'll just kind of take a dive into your life. Um, if you kind of give the audience a little background on you kind of going into college and kind of what you were up to after college and kind of how you dove into real estate. Sure. Yeah. I went to school locally. Um, I did the whole uh, junior college to four year state school here in California where I'm from the Bay area here. And, and at the time I, I didn't know what the hell I wanted to do. I was working for my family who had owned a mechanical shop. So I worked as an apprentice mechanic uh, because I liked cars and hell, it was a job, right? It was part-time flexible enough to work with school schedule and that kind of thing. So, um, and I kind of learned a little bit uh, about sort of myself and being entrepreneurial there. And, you know, I came from a family, you know, my parents owned and ran this shop already. So that was sort of in the blood and kind of in the zeitgeist for me already. Um, but a friend of mine and I, we, we realized at the time, uh, this is back when energy drinks were still like really new, really crazy. And there was, you know, even today, there's still so many. But at the time, it felt like there was just a thousand different energy drinks in every single liquor store. Right. And and at that time, so we, we bought a brand and we started buying pallets of it and throwing it into a storage container. And we just started taking it out on our free time. And so on my lunch breaks, I would have mechanics uniform on you know, greasy oil on my arms and stuff. And I'd be rolling into gas stations and liquor stores going wheeling and dealing with uh, um, all the liquor store owners going, Hey, I'll give you, you know, 10 cases and, and I'll give you one free if you buy them or whatever. And, you know, this is the name of the game in that whole world. So it was kind of a fun thing on the side. And like, did I make uh, you know, tens of thousands of dollars? No, but it was a fun thing. It was really like, Hey, this is my first experience into sort of uh, hustling on my own on the side. And it was uh, just a fun thing to do. And uh, a couple of years later, I get into an argument with the old man and he fires me. Uh, so we, we're still on good terms today, but, you know, it's typical, just family thing. He's like, well, don't come back. And so, you know, that was that. And I actually went to go work with um, that same friend who started uh, running a distribution company, drinks and chips for a guy. And so I, he goes, come work with me. You've already been doing this on the side. So start doing that. And we uh, quickly got an offer and worked out a deal to purchase the business from the owner. The owner was like a serial entrepreneur, had like eight companies, right? So we buy the company from him. He didn't really care about that. He wanted more space in his warehouse for other things. So we take the company and run it for the next four years. And I just step away from college altogether. I go, this is worth more to me than a college education at this point. I'm learning I'm going to learn way more and I have way more opportunity uh, to gain experience here. So in hindsight, uh, I really don't think that was the worst decision. Um, but eventually 2008 happens and most of my customers board up. I come back for my regular order. There's plywood on the windows. You know, we're talking about cafes, delis, uh, those kinds of places that would buy bottled drinks, chips. So long story short, I said, OK, <laughs> you know, time to we tried to sell the business. And at that time, everyone was just. Uh, scared out of their mind and holding on to their money as tight as they could because uh, no one knew, knew where things were going and it only got worse. So just basically liquidated the, uh, um, you know, the inventory and walked away with some cash still. So I didn't end up as bad as some people did. Uh, but certainly at that point, um, finished up what I only had left, which was about a year left to finish my bachelor's degree. Um, and then it was, uh, I had a finance degree at that point and I'm looking around in 2009 going, wow, this is the worst time to have a finance degree in, you know, probably the history of this country. Right. So, you know, everyone with, uh, decades of experience was getting laid off in the finance world at that point. So, um, yeah, I had a couple, a uh, couple other places where I, I hustled trying to find my way, um, everything from, you know, inside and outside sales for different organizations and eventually just found something a little more stable and tried out the corporate world. So uh, I had already experienced this 
you know, this entrepreneurial side. And now I went to work for a corporation and they showed me some opportunities, but in the back of my mind, I'm always thinking, you know, there's always, I, I, I miss that. Right. And so, but quickly, as quick as I got the opportunities to move up, make more money and you go, okay, maybe this is good. You see this sort of, uh, this structure in a large corporation and it was with a large insurance company. So it manages huge um, vendor program with a national body shops so that kind of came from my background of working in a shop myself. Right. Yeah. So I'm here and I find myself surrounded by people 20, 30 years older than me in the same position that they got into about 20, 30 years ago when they were my age. And I said, oh, my God, I have to run as fast as I can because this is where you wait to die. This is where you wait to or for someone to retire or die themselves to move up. It's not a place that I want to be. So. Uh, long story short, uh, uh, my older brother sort of had some experience in this world. He was working with the firm that raised capital for a couple other uh, operators that were syndicating commercial real estate investments. Um, and I'm not going to get into what that is. I'm hoping your listeners sort of are aware of what that is. Uh, but essentially, they were helping bring investor capital to real estate deals. So uh, him and I basically both said, hey, we're, we're tired of what we're both doing. Let's go form our own shop. And we did. And we partnered with this company called Mag Capital Partners. I had already invested money of my own after selling a house uh, and doing really well on the sale of a house. So I had invested money with these guys. I liked them. I knew the principles. I liked the strategy. So we raised some capital and partnered with them on a deal. And we quickly realized, hey, this is a great fit. You know, let's just go long term. Let's just join forces and merge here. So, you know, I put we put our pride away. <laughs> you know, I didn't have to have my own company. Uh, because now I just feel like we're, we're all sort of entrepreneurs working together uh, to put together great real estate investments under the same umbrella of Mag Capital Partners. And the rest is history. I've been here for a little over two years. Um, so not a huge long time, but the, the firm has been around since a little before 2015, um, doing you know exactly what we do today and really keeping a focus on, on those assets, which um, I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute. That's uh, Absolutely. The, the whole story in a nutshell. <laughs> Thank you for awesome. breaking it down um, to us too. Um, so you, uh, you and your brother um, formed a company and joint ventured with Mag Capital Partners to buy industrial real estate. Exactly. So here's okay. a firm, Mag Capital Partners. Right? They go. They've been in business for a while. They great operators. They knew exactly what they were doing, mm-hmm. although they had just been using capital from a, a small circle of family and friends. And this is pretty typical for any. A firm who syndicates deals, they're crowdfunding the equity essentially, right? What happens is people generally in the beginning, they tap into their close circle and then those people start to tap out, right? They go, hey, I love your investments, but you have all my money already. It's all out there working in all these different deals. So they start to run out there and usually they start looking for help, right? How can we expand this? So uh, what what operators often do is either JV, you know, just a 50-50 partnership, um, generally speaking, with a, what some people would still call a sponsor and they essentially form, you know, they're co-sponsors in a deal. And essentially the other firm's responsibility is to raise that equity and bring it into the deal. Uh, you know, the other, the operator out there is, hey, you acquire the deal, you manage the property, manage the tenants, you know, uh, make sure distributions go out on time and all that kind of thing. And all the investor questions, all the, um, uh, anything that comes up from the investor group, the other sponsor group will handle. So you see this a lot in this world. And so it was kind of nice when we uh, when we joined Mad Capital Partners to go, hey, look, we're going to do this all in-house now, right? There doesn't need to be a separate firm here because that can that can cause a lot of problems. I've seen it before where deals in deals where uh, a JV partnership starts great and then they sell the property and then there's a squabble maybe, or maybe there's a lawsuit from one or the other because they can't agree on, Hey, you know, I thought I was uh, in the writing, you know, we're interpreting the agreement as I was supposed to get paid X amount, you know, so those disagreements can happen. And as an investor, if you're a passive investor in that deal, you don't want to know that you don't want to hear that, you know, mommy and daddy are fighting while you're waiting for your money back. Right. That's a wrong. That's a bad place to be as a passive investor. So I enjoy that we have a firm that's all in house. Um, You know, when investors ask a question, they're not sort of asking a you know, a third party or sort of an in-between, um, you know, someone who's in the middle of the true operator and the investor. You know, when people talk to us, they know that we are the true operators and we're raising capital in-house. So it's kind of nice to have that. Um, and hopefully that made sense, but feel free to ask questions if, if that didn't make sense. 
Totally. I sort of wanted to go back to when you were talking about you were in college and then you were getting into business and it was going well. And you're like, well, hey, I'm learning enough here. I'm just going to drop out. That's, that's a pretty similar situation to I was in because I, you know, I was getting into real estate while I was in college. And then I decided like, hey, like this is where my education is really coming from. So I did drop right. out as almost the same thing you did. So I wanted to just like uh, hear what your experience was, like what were the the main the main points that uh, you had to come to terms with to finally make that decision and, and what did it look like? Yeah. Oh, I was, I was a uh, very, it really worried me in the beginning um, because I had, I had kind of told people and seen this in other people before I said, look, when you, when you just take a pause, you know, I'm using air quotes here uh, from college, I had seen it before in other people, they took a pause and they filled that gap, right? They filled it with work. They filled it with expenses. Maybe they bought a car now. Oh, I'm working full time. It's impossible for them to get back to school. And that's what I saw all the time. So I said, oh my God, I hope this is not a forever pause. You know, I do want to finish my degree, but I can't ignore this opportunity. I need to take advantage of it. I need to jump in with both feet. So that really worried me. And I thought, did I just waste the last three years, you know, three quarters completing something that I would like to have? I'd like to have a finished bachelor's degree here. So that really worried me. And I'm glad I finished it in the end. Um, uh, you know, and maybe it was good that the financial crash happened for me because it gave me that opportunity to do that. Um, but yeah, jumping in, I mean, in hindsight, I've had so many interactions with um, uh, employers, partners, teammates, everyone who've sort of looked at my resume and said, they're way more impressed with the uh, ownership of a business and running a business uh, than they are with a bachelor's degree. I mean, I'll put it like that. I don't want to say that, you know, a degree is worthless or anything, but, you know, it certainly depends on the degree. And, you know, if I had a um, maybe, you know, a liberal liberal arts uh uh, degree wouldn't have served me in my career as well as my experience. Um, but that's because of the career path that I took. Right. So I needed that business experience and it really helped. I mean, we're talking about everything from dealing from customers who won't pay, you know, I mean, I had experiences where I went in and repoed people's possessions, you know, I mean, I can tell <laughs> stories about, uh, that stuff like that. I mean, I've had, uh, I've dealt with people who've thrown things at me, you know, it's just, you get into altercation sometimes and that's, you know, not the way of every business, but you get into these scenarios where you have to kind of make these judgment calls. And there's a lot more uh, real world experiences like that. Um, just dealing with people, uh, you know, running that business. Um, so that's something that's, I've always kind of enjoyed taking with me and kind of always uh, trying to take that spirit of um, get up and hustle and, get out there, try to think smarter than um, your competition and try to work harder. I'm trying to do a little both, you know, not just be the hardest worker because at the end of the day, we all want some free time, um, but trying to uh, grow and accelerate a business on your own. And, you know, sometimes you run into things like, you know, financial crisis and you just, you know, for me, I threw my hands up in the air and said, okay, I'm going to pivot and get back to school. This is my, uh, my exit point, but I certainly could have stuck with it and, tried to wrestle with that and grow it even more over time. And, um, you know, I think it was, I was ready to be done in that industry, to be honest. <laughs> but that's another <laughs> subject. I'm glad I'm where I'm at now. I'm, I love uh, real estate. So did that experience in the food industry do kind of carry over to what you started passively investing in and then created that um, company with your brother to start investing with Mag Capital Partners? Not really. I don't think there's any translation between that business that I ran um, into investing. And so the piece that I kind of left out there, I mentioned, oh, I sold a house. I really glazed over that. But yeah, I bought a house at the bottom of that, um, of, of uh, excuse me, of the financial crisis, right? In about 2011. And so houses were very cheap then. And uh, that was right about when I kind of, uh, you know, found myself falling into this corporate position uh, with a very secure kind of base pay. And I said, I felt really good about buying a house right then. I said, okay, I don't have this sort of big question mark about income and prices are low enough where I can make an entry point here. And that was the first house I bought and needed a lot of work. I'm a hands-on guy, as I told these to be a mechanic, so comfortable around tools. So I fixed it up and lived in it over five years. And when I sold, it wasn't really just all what I had done. It was mostly the market. Let's be honest. I'm not going to take credit for the amount of profit I made there, but a little bit, you know, we remodeled the house. But at the end of the day, I go, I have a, 
a, a, lar a larger sum of money than I've ever held in my hands before, right? Or in my bank account. And that was really decision time. You go, do I want to, I could buy a new house and continue to rent this one out or sell this and find a couple smaller investment properties to do. And that would be the active role, right? And what I chose to do was the passive role. I said, look, I'm finding opportunities again that, you know, this insurance company really fed me opportunities to move up the ladder. And I said, my hard work is paying off here. Why do I want to distract myself with tenants and toilets, as they say, right? So looking around in the passive investing world, you go, I can get, you know, eight to 10% cash flow on my money here and still receive the same tax benefits as if I were an active owner in a piece of real estate. Uh, and when they sell the property, I'm going to get profit on the back end as well. And I don't have to lift a finger. That's great. It felt like a no brainer to me. So and having, uh, again, my brother had worked with this firm and had some relationships with different uh, operators out there. It was kind of, he sort of introduced me to it. And, and I, you know, at that point started making some placements, you know, some money here, some money there, some money here, and a few different deals with different operators. One of which, of course, was Mad Capital Partners, who I've joined today. So um, that to me was kind of my entry into the passive investing world and i just started to review more and more deal offerings from more and more sponsors and you you know the more you look at the more you review the more you learn you see who's kind of showing you what and you know who's showing you maybe less information or more information and um, it just takes repetitions it's like anything you know you're just not going to be uh i don't want to say an expert but you're not going to really know something until you've had a lot of practice looking at it and talked with folks and sort of analyzed it and you know, I, I love going back and forth with uh, my brother. We still, you know, have beers and talk about investments and this and that. And, and um, you know, we'll get into it and he'll see certain things he likes and I see certain things that I like. And, you know, we argue about, uh, you know, why he's wrong and I'm right, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, that's that was kind of a, that passageway into this world of passive investing. And really, once I got to see the sponsor groups and how they structure things and how they think um that was you know really kind of something i learned over time and eventually um joining my capital partners uh it's been even more revealing to kind of go wow okay here are things that we sort of face as a sponsor group and how we have to balance that risk reward between you know taking care of a sponsor team and investors right everyone's got to be happy right you don't want a sponsor team that's not uh incentivized to complete a deal or perform really well. You want to make sure everyone's objectives are really aligned so that um, everyone's either winning or losing together, right? At the end of the day, you want to know, hey, if something's going wrong, uh, if I'm the passive investor, the sponsor team's not making out like a bandit, you know, while I'm back here uh, holding the bag. So hopefully yeah. that made sense. Absolutely. Um, so kind of transferring from passive investing to kind of starting a private equity fund with your brother, then raising money for sponsors and you kind of just moved it in-house into mag capital partners. Yeah. And I know you're eager to talk about um, your strategy, which uh, we all are very eager um, to talk about what you guys are no, doing in the industrial space. Whatever. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, so yeah, if you, if you just want to dive in, uh, dive in into what your strategy is with, um, I mean, what assets are you guys looking for? And I know when you think industrial, I mean, most people think, or at least I thought before I talked with you at the Bigger Pockets convention, it was just like e-commerce, you know, Amazon and mm -hmm. right. um, what and you guys factories, do. Yeah. Factories and warehouses is straight, straight what I think of. Right. Well, going back to what you originally said, you know, when we first, my brother and I first formed, you know, our last name is Walgren, right? It was Walgren Capital Partners. That lasted <laughs> for all of about uh, six months, right? So it was yeah. short-lived before we said, okay, let's just put this in the closet. We don't need this. You know, we're stronger together as a team under the single umbrella of, of Mad Capital Partners. So, and, you know, you got to put a little of your pride away, right? I'm not a entrepreneur business owner anymore, right? I'm working for a team and that's okay, right? It's something that I don't have uh, 40 years of experience, you know, in real estate, like some of these folks do, you know, I'm somewhat new to this industry. So happy to join a team. And I always tell people, look, if you want to learn an industry, go work for someone who's great and has tons of experience. Um, or you're going to have to start out really small and gain it for yourself. And maybe that's the hard way, right? So anyway, going back to um, what you're saying and about industrial, it's so interesting when you talk to people about that asset class and everyone thinks something different, right? Uh, someone else, one person's thinking an Amazon last mile delivery center. They think of the giant conveyor belts with the, you know, computer scanners that push packages left or right. And they go down different chutes to different 
trucks and it's uh, fascinating, right? And it's a really complex operation. And who doesn't want to have a, a tenant like Amazon in their building, right? If I have a nice long lease with Amazon, I'm sleeping great every night, you know? I mean, hell, I'm going to travel the world and never check my email because I know I'm going to get rent in my account every single month, right? So that's something that um, some people think about. And the other side is, you know, warehousing and distribution. Um, but a lot of times people don't think about um, this other side, which is, what we do a lot of business in uh, or the types of tenants that we work with, which are manufacturing companies or food processors or food uh, producers. Um, there's all types out there. And, you know, anything you touch in your hand, we kind of assume that everything's sort of coming from China. And sure, there's a lot of manufacturing overseas, uh, but there's a lot here. Right. And um, we kind of talked a little bit in the green room before the show about, you know, a, a property I just walked, you know, someone who makes, uh extremely micro porous barriers that are within the internal structure of a flooded lead acid battery highly engineered product you know and it's like no no one even thinks about that but the amount of engineering the amount of um of uh research and development that goes into a product like that you know we're talking about a single production line in one building that costs you know 16 17 million dollars to produce this product you know so uh, you know, maybe your doodads, maybe your little cheap plastic toys, you know, a lot of that comes from overseas, but there's a whole lot of stuff that has, um, a lot of, there's a lot of intellectual property behind some of the complex manufacturing that's happening here in the U S and I mean, I love it. I go see these tenants and it, I get a little bit of national pride, just like, wow, this is cool. It's American manufacturing and these guys are killing it. They're doing great. And, um, and they just produce a quality product. Right. So, uh, that's really the kind of tenants that we're working with a lot of times. And, and the reason for that is, you know, again, I would love to have an Amazon tenant, right. Or a home Depot, one of these, what you would call a national credit tenant. Mm -hmm. And that's great to have. There's a lot of security there. However, it, the cap rates, and I'm hoping your audience is kind of familiar with cap rates and valuation, but essentially they're looking at the valuation of this property and how much operating income it produces. And that, cap rate and essentially how much operating income a property produces uh, based on the price, um, it really gets compressed, meaning there's not a lot of yield when you invest in an asset like that with a national credit tenant because it's so de-risked. And that's because you have a long-term lease with a single tenant like an Amazon or someone who you just go, look, these guys do $5 billion or $20 billion in sales every year. Do you think that they're going to go and solve it and say, hey, I'm sorry, we couldn't pay the rent this month? That's not going to happen. So yeah. for that reason, you get institutional money that they park their cash into an investment like that. They love that. It's three and a half, four percent yield. It's almost nothing at this point. It's barely even keeping up with inflation. And that's OK. That's what the institutions want. They want to mm -hmm. safeguard their money, get some real estate benefits along the way. But ultimately, this is a very uh, this is a hedge against risk for them. So for us, we want better yield than that, right? <laughs> I think everyone wants better yield than 4%. So we're looking at these middle market tenants, these private credit tenants. So these are companies that are, when I say private credit, that means, you know, they're not publicly traded, for instance. You know, those companies have to reveal all their financials. They have to go, you know, be compliant with the SEC and reveal everything all the time. Uh, private credit tenant, they... It's private, as the name implies, so it's not public information, and and there's not a Moody's or Standard and Poor's or any one of these financial institutions that's been able to apply a credit rating. So you might see Walmart. Hey, Walmart, you know, if they issue a corporate bond, that's a double A rated corporate bond. That's pretty. I think that's the highest rating there is, right? They got rid of all the triple A's altogether. So that is rated super high. It's common knowledge. It's public information. It's, uh, you know, basically anyone who looks at that, it trades almost like a commodity with what we're dealing with. You have a tenant that it's a little bit more of a mystery, right? And we have to dive in. We have to hire credit and uh, analysts that we have on our team to dive into their, uh, their financials, their debt terms, um, interview the whole C-suite of executives and talk to them about where they've been, where they plan on going. Um, if they're selling the property to us and we're leasing it back to them in the sale leaseback transaction, which we'll talk about, they what are they going to do with these proceeds, right? They stand to take $10 million of equity out of this 
and bring it. And now they'll have it liquid. What are you going to do with that? Is it you're paying down debt? You're investing in new equipment. So we have to really get a good understanding of that. And a lot of times you at the end of the day, you go, there's a lot less risk than what's being perceived here. And that's where the arbitrage is. You go, there's a perceived level of risk and the asset's going to trade based on that level of risk of the tenant. And that level of risk may be below that. So that delta there, that's your arbitrage, right? That's where you're really finding an opportunity um, that makes a lot more sense where, hey, I got a great yield with a lower amount of risk than is uh, typically um, associated with that kind of yield. Awesome. Yeah, through the credit analyst and, I mean, just really figuring out what they're um, intend to do with all that capital if they liquidate it. Like, are they looking to, um, you know, are they looking to build up or is it, are they just trying to uh, pay off a bunch of debt? That's, that's very fascinating. Yeah. And yeah. can you talk about that? Oh, go ahead. No, I was going to jump in the sale lease back thing. Cause I oh, yeah, okay. I was going to say, can you talk about the sale lease back? Cause Nick was telling me about that today and it was just blowing my mind that like they own the building and they sell it to you, but they're going to stay in the building just so they can get the money out of it. Um, yeah, this I'd is a huge, into that. yeah, this is like 80% of the transactions we do are sale lease back. So here's a commercial business, you know, we'll just call it Joe's manufacturing, right? Hey, they make uh, whatever gears and sprockets, right? We'll call it something like that. And so, you know, very successful company. They do 200 million a year in revenue, very profitable. And they go, hey, you know what? We'd like to access some capital. And they have alternatives, right? I can go get a loan from a bank. I can get a line of credit based on these, you know, just like you can on a house. Hey, you own the house. You, know, you can get a line of credit and use it. It's all tied and collateralized by the real estate. So they could do that too. But the problem is you don't get more than about 70%, usually 65, 70% of, you know, the, the value of the property, right? So, Hey, I got $10 million in equity there. Well, bank will say, all right, we'll give you a line of credit. You know, we have basically a second mortgage on this real estate now, and we'll give you access to 7 million. So they might want all 10. So in that case, they can go to a sale leaseback uh, transaction and say, Hey, we'll work with a a buyer who will simultaneously lease this property back to us. It's a really seamless transaction. I mean, no one moves out of the building, right? And everyone stays put. The operations from day to day just continue to go and a transaction happens simultaneously. So it's a financing instrument for the seller. And so now, hey, I have $10 million in equity. I got all of it. I got all of it here. And I didn't have to put that on my liabilities uh, side of my balance sheet, right? So, you know, if you get that debt from the bank, well, boom, that's on your your balance sheet, right? And it certainly doesn't look great on your balance sheet, you know, and you may have another loan where the lender goes, oh, you're, you're over levered, you know, maybe you're even breaking some of the covenants that we have in existing debt terms. So um, all this is kind of important to know, uh, because that's the motivation behind the seller, right? They're looking to access capital. And it's really case by case on what they want to use it for. Do I want to buy some new equipment and start a new product line? Do I want to pay down debt? It's, you know, that's not very exciting, but oftentimes that's a motivation where they go, hey, we, uh, you know, we actually pulled some debt out to, you know, seize an opportunity. Maybe we bought a competitor. You know, maybe there was a, a, a property right next door that was for, for sale, you know, and we said, oh, we can't screw around. Let's just get some debt. Let's buy the property. Let's get it done. And then afterwards they say, we need to recapitalize, right? Our balance sheet's loaded up. Let's sell this property and lease it back. You know, we just needed to secure the property, let's say, in that particular example. And at the end of the day, they go, all right, we achieved what we wanted to accomplish. You know, we doubled our footprint. Let's do a sale lease back. Let's, you know, strengthen our balance sheet again. So now we're at a point where we can continue to make moves and grow. So it could be a number of different things. And um, at the end of the day, it's, it's great for them. And for us, think about this as from an investor standpoint. I do a sale lease back. I have no renovations to do. There's no uh, tenant improvements I need to do to the property just to sign a new lease. Really, you, you execute this lease and they're in place and rent starts from day one. So that's the nice part is it's consistent cash flow. Um, I have 100% occupancy with a single tenant. I have a triple net lease. And for your listeners that don't know, that means a tenant takes care of all of the uh, expenses, including um, uh, excuse me, property taxes, uh, insurance, maintenance, uh, utilities, all those things, and even like roof and structure and capital expenditure type big ticket items, right? So now I don't have any risk there either. So I got a long-term commitment, 100% occupancy, uh, no expenses. This is beautiful. Every check that comes in is essentially after I pay the bank for my mortgage payment each month, everything beyond that is free cash flow. 
and it's going to be super consistent month in and month out. I'm not going to have six months down the road. Oh, shoot. I had to replace an HVAC unit and the parking lot needed some repairs. None of that is on the table. There's no lost tenants. Oh, you know, we got a couple empty units that doesn't exist either. So the risk is there. It's just moved instead of being being in this operational side. The risk is really just around the tenant. Can the tenant pay rent over the course of at least the hold of the property, if not, you know, the entire length of the lease? So, you know, we're generally signing a 15, 20 year lease. We're not going to hold the property that long. Usually we're going to look for an exit maybe four to six years later. Um, and really, it's just looking at this tenant going, how strong are they? You know, do we feel really confident that they can weather economic pullbacks, different, you know, presidential administrations and policies that could affect the industry they're in? And, you know, that's all has to be done on the front end. Um, but we monitor these tenants, too. And that lease that we have them sign, um, it's it includes required quarterly financial reporting. So we're monitoring their performance quarter in and quarter out. Hey, if you had a couple of quarters of declining revenues, we're going to have some questions, right? But generally, a lot of that is mitigated on the front end, right? You're going, you're going back through their financial history. And what's cool, and I know it doesn't mean everything, but I love the aspect of working with a tenant who's been around for 70, 80 years. We had a tenant recently um, that we did a sale lease back with, been in business for over 150 years. It's crazy. They're the god. They're the uh, basically the godfathers of the boiler slash steam generation industry, right? So they essentially, you know, probably powered the entire industrial revolution in the 1800s, and they're still in business today. And so it's it's pretty wild. Um, you get to some of these guys, and and the reason I bring that up is because you go, they have already survived those economic pullbacks. They have survived um policies and changes in culture everything that time has thrown at these guys they've gone through so it's a testament to you know company culture it's a testament to the industry that they're in and you know we we talk and and act a little bit like a private equity firm in that way because we're so interested in what this business is and how well they perform because that's where all that risk is centered um, and behind that you have to have the real estate fundamentals, of course, because if something does happen and there's always a possibility of any company going under. And if that happens, I want to know really not really unlikely, but worst case scenario um, that I have a piece of real estate at a great low basis. So, yeah, there's a couple ways to mitigate that, but a lot of due diligence on this tenant. Wow. Um, Drew, I remember um, um, discussing with you about, I think it was a particular deal where um, you had a bunch of vacant land around the industrial space and you guys were looking to lease it out to a solar, um, a solar panel company that was looking to um, install solar panels all along the property. And that was like a lease. Um, I think it was a percentage lease. I don't know if it was a triple net lease, but um, I, I think it's really cool because it's kind of the innovative future, you know, installations of clean energy that is kind of in that field of industrial real estate. Um, so, uh, I guess, are you guys, um, you know, researching into new industrial properties and looking for those trends? When looking yeah, it's for... good. Yeah, it's, it's an alternative way of producing additional income, right? Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, I own a piece of property, right? And I go, all right, there's maybe there's 130 acres, right? And I think that was the case in the property I told you about. And I have a property here that's uh, half a million square feet, huge industrial building, but it's certainly not covering all this land. All right, what are my what are my options here, right? I have all yeah. this extra land, and maybe I want you know again in this sort of a, a time when you can sort of structure a lease of your own, you may say, hey, uh, this tenant doesn't really care about the land. I'm going to lease up this property, and it's not going to include any of this additional land. And now I have some freedom here because I purchased all property, and no one seemed to really care about you know a little bit of the pricing of this vacant land was sort of built in. Um, yeah. And the example I gave you, it's a kind of a tertiary area. You know, this isn't like a hundred thousand dollars per acre kind of area it's not an intro location it's out in the country right there's a lot of yeah. farmland and all that so okay as a real estate operator um i got a lot of options here what could i do here i could lease out this land to a farmer maybe i could subdivide it and sell it off in pieces um i could uh like you like we talked about when we were together is is i could work with a or develop for myself a solar farm there and lease out you know to be honest i'm not an expert in here we're really exploring this now because we closed on this property i don't know four or five months ago and uh, i know a guy on our team is sort of a construction facilities manager he's been exploring things and having calls with different um solar developers so 
you know, you can get as granular as you want. You know, do you have them develop the the solar farm? Do we develop it? Uh, if we develop it, okay, how how do we sell the energy provided? You know, who is the end user and customer here? So all that is, you know, just saying, hey, I have additional land here. How can I make more income here? Because if I have some kind of contract with a solar uh, power or power buyer, for instance, and I'm going, hey, I'm able to produce uh, after investing maybe a million dollars in a solar farm, right? I'm able to produce uh, X amount per month, right? And now at the end of the day, I'm selling this asset and it includes, you know, a huge property. There's a lease here. There's a lease there. Um, it includes this real estate, this building. It includes a solar farm. This building is producing X amount of rent every month. This solar farm is producing X amount of uh, power uh, sales per month, you know. And so at the end of the day, you have this net operating income, right? So it's just a creative way to look at how else you can make money. Uh, you don't always have to develop a building, you know. I mean, I could just lease out this land for grazing to cattle farmers, you know. I mean, there is all there's all kinds of options, and it just depends on um, what your end goal is. And I think a solar a solar farm has probably a lot more upside potential than you know leasing it out for farming, uh, but it takes more work, right? So. And it's going to take some capital infusion, right? Where's that million dollars going to come from? You have to finance that. You have to probably bring in some of your own equity, right? Just like a property, you're going to have to probably front some money up front and maybe someone finances it at a certain amount of leverage. So uh, it can be done in a million different ways. And it's always fun to kind of explore that, especially for that example we talked about, right? You go, hey, this property paying rent, it's paying all the expenses. We don't need anything. This is just gravy. You know, everything extra is icing on the cake. And so that's what makes it kind of fun is sort of seeing how much juice you can squeeze out of a deal like that. It's absolutely gravy. I'd have to agree with that. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that I think I mentioned to you, but I'll, I'll just quickly say, I think I was yeah. mentioning this uh, rubber landfill deal we're working on. And I don't that know if it's fruition, but, you know, long story short is it's 360 acres. It's a hundred percent rubber landfill used by a tire uh, pro, um, waste and disposal company, right? So they shred the tires. They they have individual cells that they fill, and they when they're filled, they cap it uh, basically with some kind of um, plastic barrier, I believe, and then soil goes over it, and now it just looks like land. And it's not you can't build. Uh, property. You can't build buildings on this, right? It's not strong enough. It, it just won't. However, you can have it for a grazing land or solar farms, right? Here's two really light uses that you could put there. And now you've taken something that sort of served its use and now is sort of limited in use, but hey, you found a creative way to uh, make money on that. So that was a possibility we were talking about there. And um, you know, it's just, uh, it's an interesting world. And I know a lot of folks in real estate, um, in the business have been really in tune with, um, what's happening, uh, with solar and how they can use that maybe to add value just to a building itself. Hey, can we add solar here? Because, you know, if you have a gross leased property, for instance, where maybe the landlord says, Hey, we're going to take on the utilities for you. In that case, then it might be a really great investment to put on solar there because, you know, your lease rate is going to be higher because you're taking on the responsibility of the utilities. And now you make this investment and just adds value and increases net operating income. At the end of the day, that's that NOI. That's what everyone's looking to increase to uh, if you want to add value. So what's the what's the go to strategy when you're looking for industrial investments? Like what's the bread and butter for your company? Is there a specific type of asset or are you just looking for any type of deal you can be creative and make money off of? Single tenant, triple net lease is is kind of number one. Um, and right behind that, love to be an industrial and love to have that be a sale lease back. So it doesn't have to be a sale lease back. It doesn't even necessarily have to be industrial, but you know, I might be looking at an office building and someone says, hey, you know, we got a long term lease or we're prepared to sign a new long term lease. Um, and we have a single tenant signing a lease for the entire property with a triple net lease. That's great. That's kind of what we want. We want to have this passive hands off management of the property where, hey, I want to hammer a rent check every month and you manage the property. Right. That's what I want to do. Uh, as a company, that's what we want to do. And that helps us scale, right? We don't have to spin our tires on, oh, this is happening. We got to, you know, 
replace a roof and spend some time with vendors on that. Um, it's hard to scale. It's hard to focus on new acquisitions when you're doing that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of question marks around office space, for instance, now. Um, and rightfully so, right? I mean, I'm here in the Bay Area. There's all these Silicon Valley guys, Google and Facebook, and they're telling their employees now, eh, it's probably going to be middle of 2022. Who knows, right? Who knows if they'll ever go back to the office full time? I really doubt it. So lots of question marks, but you might look at a property and go, hey, uh, these guys are prepared to sign a long-term lease. And um, let's just say it's, uh, um, you know, it's, again, I'll just go back to like Walmart, someone who's really secure household name, and you go, well, I don't really care if they have their employees go back in the office because Walmart is putting a corporate guarantee on a 15-year lease. So whether they utilize that property or not, I have really excellent recourse to, to this company, right? They're, they're not going to break the lease, right? Because it would be foolish. Mm -hmm. You would immediately litigate and, and win a judgment there. So, uh, so these guys really, it's, you know, if you have them signing a lease, it doesn't matter to me so much. Um, what they do with the property, whether they have their employees come into the office or not. So it's you kind of keep that in mind. And, and I think middle of last summer, you know, in the throes of COVID, uh, we actually had a property that was about half and half industrial and office. And, you know, some folks, some investors I work with kind of had the question mark about office. Hey, I don't know when people are going back. And uh, the deal was with a tenant called uh, who was near, to dear, near and dear to all of, uh, hopefully, all of your listeners' hearts, Scantron, the uh, testing company, right? So uh, oh, wow. I haven't been in school for a while, but I'm not sure. Are you still using Scantron day in and day out? Mm -hmm. I think that Sometimes. I think that train stopped around three or four years ago. Okay. Well, Scantron. I know from, from all our due diligence, they had really, I mean, this, this property that we got was actually part of their technology solutions. Um, so they were making sort of white envelope products uh, for uh, software, essentially, to yeah. add into university testing and assessment sites and things like that. So whether or not you know, you're probably still using a Scantron product. It's just a white envelope product that's sort of been built into the website, right? So it's pretty interesting. And these guys, uh, easily profitable still. Again, they do a lot in the technology solution side. And they do a lot for corporate assessment and testing. And long story short is they send all their people home. There was about two people who needed to come into that building every day. That was it. Everyone else went home and they said, We're, we know this is going to be temporary. We know people are going to come back to the office. We're absolutely prepared to sign a 15-year lease. So that's exactly how it went. So there's just kind of an example for you um, what that might look like and why we look at that. Hey, I want a long-term lease with triple net. After that, it's really just a matter of you know how strong this tenant is and if we believe that they're going to be in it for the long haul and be profitable and, and hopefully even grow, right? If they double their revenue, they're a stronger tenant. They're a little closer to the Amazons in the world if they're growing, right? Uh, maybe not that close, but going in that direction, which means, like we talked about earlier, that cap rate is going to trade differently. So if I do have a tenant that grows exponentially while we hold that property, their credit has been enhanced over that time. So now when I sell, it's going to be a, a more valuable asset because you have stronger credit backing the lease. So it's interesting. It's We're not investing in the equity of this company, but if they double in size or triple in size, that is uh, an, an additional amount of profit that you're going to see upon sale of the real estate. Wow. I've never looked at it like that. Um, have you ever had a particular deal where you invested into the company, Drew? Or do you guys just yeah, we stay actually, away from that at all? Uh, we've recently moved into... Um, the private equity world, if you'd like to call it, or we invested in our first mm -hmm. operating company recently. So, you know, I think that kind of answers the question, you know, we didn't buy some equity, but the whole thing, uh, we purchased a, an auto transport company, you know, this is not a, the sexy world oh, wow. of tech startups or anything like that. We saw an opportunity and we, we've seen, and the reason for that is because, you know, again, you've heard me talk about really concentrating on evaluating a business and a credit worthiness. Mm -hmm. uh, we have those skills, those core competencies, that really translate to the private equity world. We've seen a lot of deals go right underneath our nose. We've rubbed shoulders with private equity firms as they purchase companies and we do the real estate for them. So we've really gotten to know them, how they stack their capital, how they structure returns to their investors. Um, it's an interesting world and, and uh, we've really gotten to know it and we finally pulled the trigger on our first one and have another one probably coming maybe at the end of this year. Um, and it's just, it's a little different, right? valuations are much different for an operating company than they are for a real estate, uh, how they're treated. You know, they're looking at 
EBITDA multiples, you know, enterprise value multiples versus mm -hmm. cap rates is sort of the name of the game when you get to uh, commercial real estate. So, you know, it's, it's wildly different. And, you know, the most interesting thing to me, I think, is if you buy an operating company and you grow it, uh, the really cool part is the growth and value of the company can be exponential. And the reason for that is if you take EBITDAs, you're in the two to $4 million per year range, let's say, you might have an enterprise multiple of I don't know, somewhere between four and six X, right? Four, you know, it's worth four to six times, you know, that, you know, 3 million in EBITDA, let's say. If you increase that to like, let's say seven or eight uh, million in EBITDA per year, that multiple, you think, hey, if it's the same, I'm still making 5X, except now it's at, uh, you know, $8 million. Okay, I just increased the value by quite a bit. It's not that though, that multiple goes up as well. You might have an 8X multiple on $8 million of EBITDA is now the valuation. So it's a pretty interesting world. And, you know, there's a reason for that. It's as you kind of grow a company and grow profits, it's perceived as more stable. Um, you know, it's becomes worth, uh, worth more because there's a perception that there's a lower likelihood of failure rate as you get to a higher uh, revenue and profit. So it's pretty interesting. And, and uh, for us, you know, it's been fun to kind of structure something that's attractive to our investors and still make sure that we have something that, um, you know, there's a risk profile that we want to take on and see some upside at, at the end of this thing too, right? So I could talk for, you know, maybe a different podcast about that sometime, but I could go on for another hour uh, about how that looks and what we look for. But you could see why that was kind of a natural departure for us in, in the way and our competencies around um, looking at businesses and how strong they are. Right. Absolutely. And uh, Drew, before we kind of transfer in the, in the last section, I did want to kind of go back a little bit when you and your brother started uh, Walgren um, Capital and uh, just some of your early struggles um, with raising capital or, I mean, did you have, have struggles and kind of transferring that to the in-house structure of MAG Capitals? Um, just some early struggles you had and just um, how you overcame those and, um, you know, took leaps and bounds to where you are now. Yeah, it was a, it's funny to look back on it. Um, you know, it's like, I just felt like we just jumped into it and we said, you know, let's just see what happens. <laughs> you know, we felt <laughs> like that we didn't know what we were doing, but it just, it, you know, it was uh, uncharted territory for both of us. And that's the way it is. Anyone starts a business, that's uh, how it is. It's risky. It's scary in the beginning. And, and, um, you know, when we came in, it was just, it, it felt a little, uh, frankly, it, it felt a little easy at first. And then I realized, okay, we got a, our first deal done that we partnered with Mag Capital Partners here and we brought equity into the deal and there was, um, you know, there was compensation for that. Okay. You know, wow. Okay. Well, the first transaction happened in the first couple months. Okay. And then he's start looking around and go, we go, okay, are we going to offer now we start taking a step back and going, all right, we have some cash in the coffers, right? But now we really need to do what we should have done first, which was evaluate Hey, what's our vision for this? What's our strategy? Um, I mean, we, you know, we were just all at Bigger Pockets Con, right? And they talk a lot about that. And we really just skipped right past a lot of that in the beginning to get that transaction done and just to kind of make sure, hey, there's money in the bank account and no one's going to starve uh, for at least a little bit. So let's, you know, we jumped right past that, got a transaction done, but we never really thought about what are we, um, what's the ultimate end goal? Um, and, you know, that could be a number of different things. Hey, are we just going to JV consistently with Mac Capital Partners only? Um, or are we going to JV with a small number of operators out there and say, okay, to our investor base, here's what we do. We are bringing a select, hand-picked, highly vetted group of operators to you that we've worked with in the past. And we're putting our own money into these deals. And uh, we're inviting you to join these deals as well. And, you know, blah, blah, blah. Here's why all that, right? So... That's one way we could have gone. So long story short is that's something, uh, you know, all of a sudden after we do that first one, we go, okay, what's next, right? <laughs> I kind of didn't yeah. know. It was sort of like, all right, we're starting to look at different operators. And that's when we quickly realized, hey, we could continue to JV with these guys over at Mad Capital Partners. We like them a lot. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and we looked around at all the other operators. And not to say that they were bad, but there was just no one we liked nearly as much. No one we thought had the same 
um, integrity and the same kind of uh, expertise around the field that they were in. Uh, frankly, I see a lot of operators out there doing, you know, multifamily one month and mobile home parks the next. And they're really just shotguns spread all over. And, you know, you could say, hey, they're just opportunistic. But frankly, uh, I didn't want to work with an operator like that. I wanted someone who said, look, this is my specialty. And maybe it's um, self-storage in uh, Southern California, you know, or some kind of really niche thing where I know this market, I know this asset class, like the back of my hand, and that's who I want to invest with. And as a passive investor, that's what you're doing. You're really leveraging someone else's expertise. And if they're saying, hey, I do everything, do they really have any expertise? You know, it's a sort of jack of all trades question. So that's, uh, you know, what I wanted to avoid. And you know, basically we realized, hey, there's a longer term need for Mad Capital Partners. And we have this uh, this partnership and this sort of fondness of each other. It just made sense. So it didn't last long. Like I said, it was <laughs> like four to six months. And we're like, hey, let's just come together. This makes perfect sense. It's a match made in heaven. And um, I think that, you know, it was like it was uh, like the light shined down from heaven and everything just made sense again. That's amazing. Yeah. That's super amazing. And I think um, the last, uh, I think it was the last event at Bigger Pockets where Brandon Turner and his uh, partner, Brian Murray, s- stood up there and they said the one thing, just focusing on the one thing and building your culture, um, um, building your culture around the company with people that you can work with. And I mean, it's like a family. So I think it's totally. so important. So Yeah. Work with people you like and trust and, and all that. And that's kind of why I, I wanted to come work you know, with these guys here, because I had gotten to know the two principals. And, you know, again, it's a it's a mix of sort of respect and really just enjoying, you know, banter and we can joke and kid and and we we all hustle and everyone, uh, no one's off uh, on vacation for three weeks in a row because they're too important to hustle. Everyone works hard. So it's a it's a cool culture to be a part of and and contribute to. um, And we all feed off each other. So that's, um, I think, more important than, you know, what might be like, oh, this opportunity might be a little bit better. It's like, hey, if you have that synergy, and I'm sorry, I just use a really corporately overused word, but uh, it's true. I don't know what else to call that. It's that uh, that mojo between people where it's like you just feed off each other and, you know, two plus two equals 10, you know, that's that kind of relationship you're looking for. And you're going to do a lot more. You're going to get a lot more out of yourself and you're going to help uh, other people achieve a lot more through your help as well. So, uh, yeah, no, no regrets. I've, I've enjoyed the ride here. Awesome. Um, and kind of, kind of moving into the last, um, section of the podcast Drew, um, and starting it off, uh, what's, what's the greatest lesson you have learned? Um, Oh my God. Yeah. Greatest so lesson you've learned. It's a, it's, it be the a single lesson. greatest lesson, the single greatest lesson. That um, you know, maybe maybe you bring up in your mind every single day. You just remind yourself um, constantly something. I guess like, uh, I feel like it comes back it's, to you. Um, it's really kind of lean in. Um, I you know I I think it's really detrimental to people, and I see this a lot. And maybe it's just me affirming my own sort of personality. It's it's um, you know, there's a lot of different ways you can look at it. Which is you know, sometimes people kind of go, oh, you know, look, we're talking about real estate, right? I mean, how about just individuals you hear? And I know you guys are at an age where you're probably your friends are not all buying their first house right now, but there's going to come a time where you meet all kinds of people who are like, they're humming and hawing, they're kind of wringing their hands, white knuckling this, the, the, um, whether it's the right time to buy a house because they're looking at the market. Oh, look right now, right? Hey, houses are at all time highs, you know? And you really have to just lean in and do it. You know, it's never the perfect time to buy a house, it's never the perfect time to have a baby with your, spouse, right? I mean, all those things, people just sort of kind of go, well, it's not the right time. You really have to jump in with both feet and just kind of like lean into life. And that's what I I constantly and try to remind myself to do when I start overthinking something. And I go, "Um, you're, it's too much thinking. And, you know, there's a balance, obviously. uh, But, (laughs) but I really think that that's something we all tend to kind of go through, and especially in the investment world. It's like, um, you know, I, I've known people who have been sitting on the sidelines for four years because they've been 
uh, all investing. I mean, people with a huge amount of money and just thinking about the amount of uh, gains that they really missed out on because they were sort of trying to time the market, things like that. Right. So when it comes to, you know, buying real estate and and investing, um, you know, maybe too many people have 2008 fresh on their mind still. Um, it's been a while, right? So it's been what 13 years. So it's it's been some time there, but still people kind of go, hey, this can happen. And you know, if I'm gonna keep this real estate based again, investing based, uh, you really it's it's time in the market, not timing the market. I know I forgot who said that, but um that's uh Warren Buffett, I think. So you really I think there's a lot of truth to that. And you know, if we're looking at real estate over the last 30, 40 years, um, you know, there's an upward trend, right? There's these hiccups and the worst thing to ever happen to real estate was in 2008 and you know look where we are today so um you really if you're in it for the long term then you know twiddling your thumbs or doing like the guy i mentioned earlier who sat out of the market for the last four or five years um and that and <laughs> that guy's got to be kicking himself i don't think he is he still thinks uh you know the world's going to come crashing down any moment but that's not the way i want to live personally um you know you want to take some risks and especially if uh, you have a lot of students that are listening now. Uh, I know they've probably heard this before, but you're at an age where you should be taking risks, right? Uh, you know, once we're all, you know, 65, we should really, uh, you know, be a little more cautious, right? Um, but at this age, you should be taking some risks. Uh, throw some money in crypto, you know, throw some money on in that flip that might uh, work out or might not work out, you know, find those opportunities and go for it, you know, and, and don't overanalyze it. So, Sorry, that's a very long answer, but um, that's uh, a. <laughs> that, that was good. That was a good answer. There's a lot I, of advice packed you, in there. Yeah, I think you killed two birds with one stone. I was going to ask, what what uh, advice would you give to our students? And I think you just knocked out of the park with that answer. So there you go. Lean in. Yeah. Have a <laughs> so, <kidding>. Yeah. So <laughs> ne next question: What is one book that you've either given away the most amount of times, or at least recommended the most amount of times? Uh, recently I've been recommending, a, um, a quite a bit, an audiobook. I just, I feel like I never have time to read a book, to be honest. It's always audiobooks for me. I'm like, I gotta kill some time in that car on the drive. So, um, I've been, uh, listening to a book by a guy named Sam Zell. He's a sort of notable billionaire. And to be honest, um, you know, if you're under the age of 40, you probably don't know, you might not know who Sam Zell is and it wouldn't uh, be a problem. He's kind of a little bit of, older i mean he's got to be in his 70s now but he's kind of he's pretty funny in the audiobook he narrates it himself and he's just this crazy raspy voice um and and he's you know notable billionaire investor has been in real estate for a long time and really what he talks about a lot is zigging when other people are zagging right kind of looking over here when everyone's running away from something and towards something else kind of going all right well what's over there you know i'm gonna go dig in i'm gonna ask some questions and really explore it because you might find that opportunity there. And, um, you know, you see this all the time in life, right? It's sort of uh, being a contrarian and finding that there's huge opportunities sometimes when you're just asking the right questions and sort of untangling something that looks really messy and finding out, oh, I understand this now. And I understand, you know, uh, at least from an investing perspective where I can um, make a great play here. So that's kind of his, uh, um, the name of the book I should mention is called Am I Being Too Subtle by Sam Zell. Um, and so that's a, a great one. So I should have let off with the title there, but um, <laughs> I was going to ask, but I'm glad you came back to it. So <laughs> if nothing else, he's a, he's an entertaining guy. Awesome. Awesome. And um, I mean, this really doesn't correlate with the advice section, but um, I, I just thought this would be very interesting to hear. What is, what is your end goal, Drew? I want to be rich and not have to show up anywhere unless I want to. That's uh, that's the end goal, really. No, it's it's uh, that second part is the more important part. Is uh, the rich part funds the lifestyle part, right? Mm -hmm. Which is I can work on whatever I want to work on, you know. Yeah. And ultimately, um, I mean, really, uh, near-term goals. I would love for in five to ten years to be able to take. Uh, I have two kids married, yeah. and I would love to take my whole family and just go. Hey, we're gonna go. I'm going to go rent a house on the coast of Italy for a month. Hey, my family can go do what they want to do. I'm probably going to crank out some work because I enjoy what I do um, and, and still enjoy it at least. But that's something I would like to do. But I have that freedom to work remotely and, um, and hopefully let, you know, my family kind of 
enjoy some experiences to open their worlds a little bit and, and, you know, have my kids think that there's more than what's surrounding me by, you know, 20 blocks. Right. <laughs> Cause their world's mm -hmm. a little bit small now. We haven't done a lot of traveling because of, uh, um, of COVID, but you know, every ex new experience I can kind of show them. I mean, I love it too. Let's be honest. We all want to be in a house on the coast of Italy. Right. Um, but, of course. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's just being able to kind of go wherever you want, whenever you want and having that freedom mm -hmm. as long as, I mean, it's a beautiful age, right? We all have a laptop with a Wi-Fi connection. I'm like, okay, I can, like, we can get deals done and raise capital and and close on industrial properties and you know watch grow wealth for other people while we are on our own too. It, it's a it's an amazing thing. So that's a that's a short term and long term for you. Awesome, awesome. Well, Tim, do you have any more questions before we we jump off of here? No, just the last question. Where can people find out more about you and connect with you and hear a little more of your story? Sure. Yeah. If people are interested in asking questions or if they're interested in investing alongside us, um, they can reach out to me on the email, um, drew at magcp.com. That's drew at magcp.com. Uh, or you can go to our website, magcp.com. And we have like a, an investor portal there. You can register if you're interested in joining us there. So um, something to think about. Um, and again, I'm always just open if people just want to chat or ask questions. Um, it's sort of my way of giving back anything I can. I have a little narrow niche of expertise in industrial, so I'm happy to talk about that. Uh, I can't lend you much knowledge anywhere else. So. <laughs> awesome. Awesome, Joe. We really appreciate you jumping on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And um, next time in Tennessee, I'll have longer and I will drive clear across the state and we'll, uh, we'll grab a beer or a meal or something. All right. Yeah. You got to come check out Chattanooga. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, quick thing. That tour, that tour of the property I just did, the VP of operations was from Chattanooga. So I mentioned you and, and this podcast and he was, uh, had nothing but great things to say about the, the school and everything. So it's kind of cool. It was a Chattanooga na native running the, the show over there in, in, uh, uh, uh Piney Flats. Oh, wow. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. That's so cool. Sidebar, but anyway, thanks for having me. No, I appreciate it. And uh, Chattanooga, next time I'm there, I'm giving you a ring. <laughs>